Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The second Women's March occurred in a vivid moment, a government shutdown over DACA, a racist screed by the president, and months of the Me Too scandal. The roots of these present controversies run quite deep. We're going to spend the hour talking about where the country's at on gender, colonialism, and white supremacy. We'll take phone calls at 312-923-9239. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. A year ago, the first Women's March laid claim to being the largest single-day protest in U.S. history. But it also had its critics who found the Women's March clueless about the true depths of a racist capitalist patriarchy. The second Women's March featured lots more women of color and a year's worth of deliberate organizing and no loss of energy. We're going to talk about the Women's March and where this country's at with Yasmin Nair. She is an activist, a academic, and editor-at-large of Current Affairs. Nice to see you again, Yasmin. Great to be here again. Thank you. And Jennifer Breyer's here. She's Director of Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. Great to have you. Thank you. Um, you know, Yasmin, you wrote an article a year ago, Bourgeois Feminist BS. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I know full well that you were not impressed with the first Women's March and where things were at. Um, did Is the country getting any better? Because it would seem like all this uh, deliberate organizing went on, all this mm-hmm. intentionality. and um, there, But there's bad signs, too. Uh, Roy Moore got uh, right. an enormous proportion of the white women's vote in Alabama, and it seems like the same equation uh, that led to the Trump victory is still, still really present. Um, how are you feeling? Pretty much the same uh, as last year, which is not to say that there is, I'm not, uh, you know, in some ways uh, glad to see, obviously, the continuing kind of movement against arch-right actions and so on. But, you know, I have not, this year, for instance, as far as Women's March is concerned, I was just telling um, Jenny Breyer, whom I refer to as Jenny only because we are familiar with each other for over a decade now. Um, but I was just talking to Jenny about how, you know, in my circle of mostly leftist, queer, radical people and feminists, of course, uh, all of us, we organized a meeting and completely forgot that it was coinciding with the Women's March this year, for instance. <laughs> this year and, la- did you and do last, last year. year? I did the same thing last year. So it wasn't, I think the issue is, you know, when we ask why is it that women are still voting for, for instance, Roy Moore, and we say, well, you know, they're acting against their interests, we tend to forget that women are also economic actors. Women are political actors. So there are economic issues. There are political issues. Women are not required to think only of their gender. So I think when we don't scratch that kind of complication, we keep asking the same question, you know, why do women 
vote for Trump? Why do women vote for horrible men or for that matter, horrible women? And I think the issue in the U.S. for me has always been the kind of uh, the delinking the between gender, economics and politics. You know, when we only think about women as essentially women who must, for instance, hate a man who made those horrendous comments, etc., we forget that they actually live, for instance, in terrible, you know, live and exist with terrible jobs in towns like the town where I practically grew up, Lafayette, Indiana, which has decimated economy where there were no economic opportunities, certainly not for women, and certainly not for white women or black women, right? So I think we tend to delink all of that, and so we keep returning to the sense of surprise. All right. So um, I wanted to get Jenny's reaction to the march, and you went to the march. You went went to both of them. Both, yeah. Um, Do you get the feeling that there is change in the country and the march and the movement? I think that... I think one of the important things that I want to say in response to Yasmin, which I think is a very sort of smart and astute comment, um, is that there is feminist organizing happening in this city and in this country that is outside the boundaries of the Women's March. And I think that if we focus on the Women's March as the main uh, sort of site of feminist organizing, we're actually missing some of the most incredible organizing going on, whether it's um, Black Youth Project 100, which is based in Chicago, which has a national reach, which centers black feminism and black queer feminism in the way that it does work in black and brown communities or um, the immigrant uh, rights uh, sort of the Immigrant Youth Justice League, which is an organization started here or other sort of radical immigrant organizing, which is feminist and has feminists at its center, both women and men and gender nonconforming trans people, we're going to miss a lot of what we need to be thinking about. So the Women's March, I want to talk about the Women's March, but I also want to call attention to the fact that feminist organizing in this country exists well outside of the work of the Women's March. And it sounds like you're encouraged about that. I find that to be some of the most exciting work going on. Um, And I think, and there have been sites and places and different Women's Marches where those issues have been taken up and where they've also produced uh, splits among organizers, whether the question is about Palestine or whether the question is about mass incarceration, whether it's about what we think the police should do or what we think the police can do in terms of keeping us safe, who the us even is in that sentence. I think that has been pushed by feminist organizers in ways that is really important. At the same time that the Women's March has performed what we would have called in the 1970s a kind of consciousness raising. It has been far from complete. It is not um, It is not total. It has not changed everybody's consciousness. But something has happened. Something has asked a group of largely white women who have not thought of themselves as um, as white and, and invested in and participating in on behalf of white supremacy, it has asked them to actually ask a question of themselves. Some of them have not answered it. I'm not I'm not going to be naive or overly (laughs) optimistic about it. But the question has been asked, I think. 
Yasmin? Yeah, and I think absolutely. I'm so glad you raised those groups. I would also add, you know, Asada's Daughters, mm. uh, BLM. Um, I think the major difference between the groups that Jenny points to rightly and the kind of mainstream women's organizing is that is the disinvestment in electoral or politics. I think that's the huge difference. And I think this is a difference that came to light, especially, I think, during the Hillary Clinton election bid. Uh, you know, the idea that we were all, as women, for instance, uh, we were supposed to vote for her simply because she was a woman. And, you know, Madeleine Albright's infamous statement that there's special hell in women who don't vote for other women, etc. So I think electoral politics is kind of the fissure, as it were, between these kinds of feminisms. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the feminism that Jenny points to is radical, it's queer, but it's, and it's also, even when it looks electoral politics, uh, I'm thinking about the uh, movement against Anita Alvarez, exactly. which By was Anita. amazing, right? By Anita, which was, you know, a series of drop down banners, for instance, over the course of 16 days uh, to signify the 16 bullets that Laquan McDonald uh, uh, had inflicted on him, you know, and and that kind of activism, which basically said, yes, we're going to make sure that this woman does not return an elected position, but we don't care about putting someone else in her place. That is not our primary aim. Our primary aim is to expose the ways in police, in the ways in which police genocide intersect with this notion of, for instance, feminism. Oh, look, we have a woman in, in, in a position of power, but that's not our point. You see, to, to not even sort of be embroiled in that conversation is it in its, was in itself in Chicago extraordinarily radical. Uh, and that work, kind of work is being done. I mean, Asada's Daughters, for instance, is continuing that work, uh, and as is BLM and, and other organizations. Uh, is there an urgency, though, to get candidates in there? And is that uh, legitimate? I mean, if there is uh, all these major problems, mass incarceration, mass uh, immigration, expulsions, uh, the whole bit? As long as we have a system where we require elected officials to be the ones who can push through, for instance, change in terms of legislation, I think the push from radical for radical activists is to constantly be there, right? To constantly keep pushing at those issues and to make them more accountable than they have been. But it's not to be completely part of that electoral system. And I think that's what's so brilliant about what have we saw, for instance, uh, in the last couple of years. I'm talking with Yasmin Nair. She's an activist and editor-at-large of Current Affairs and Jenny Breyer, Director of Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. We're talking about uh, the second Women's March and where we're at in the United States, you can join the conversation. The phone number is 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239 is the number to call. And, um, you know, Jenny, what, how, when you were out there and you saw this Women's March here in Chicago, what did it look different to you than the first one? It didn't. I have to say, it didn't look different. Um, I think that part of that was the the first march I did uh, by myself without my, my kid who is now eight, was at the time seven. So I went to that first march by myself and I found a range of people in the sea of Columbus um, that I didn't experience this time in part because I think the the march – and the women here organizing um, made this plan to have a space where kids could be. 
And of course, I brought my kid and he was like, I was thinking that there were going to be like things to do. (laughs) But really, it was just like a section (laughs) of the march that had been sort of cordoned off. Um, And I, I have mixed emotions about that. You know, I have mixed emotions about... I appreciate that they were making a space for people who are much smaller, um, you know, in term, shorter than adults. And so it was a space that felt a little more controlled. But um, there was no way to experience the sea of humanity that I think was so, so powerful in seeing, even when you see the images of the marches around the country that were running on everybody's Facebook feeds. Um, that wasn't what I experienced. Um, and so – there's something about that. Like, what does it mean to make a space where children understand their role in this work? Um, and what does it mean for me as the mother of a white boy to really understand and communicate to him what it means to be part of a social movement where you are not going to be and should not be a leader? And so I think that that is – there's something about that that I think is really worth grappling with. Um, did it seem more – colorful to you than the last time. This time I did see uh, pictures of women holding up signs. Allah made me a feminist. I saw DACA people out there protesting. It seemed more people of color-ish. I mean, I I actually have to say um, the first march for me was had people of color at the center of it. I don't I, I guess I want to resist the argument that one was white and one was multiracial. First of all, I think that the march in Chicago is and is not different from at the the national march, the D- march in D.C. in 2017, which was intentionally um, organized by majority women of color. And I think we we – Every time we sort of talk about the whiteness of that march, which is true, we miss the work of women of color at organizing and and changing the conversation um, in ways that were were real and substantive and have continued. So I think that the we need to sort of grapple with that. And I'm a women's historian, so I'm interested in understanding how we remember things and how we talk about the past and how we memorialize things. And um, nationally, this this is a movement of, of largely of white people, not exclusively of white people. Um, and I think we need to be, and this is something Yasmin and I were talking about, we need to be able to hold the possibility that white women are at the forefront um, or are the majority of people at a women's march and the majority of people and the majority of white women are voting for Roy Moore. Like we have to be able to hold those two things. And I as a white woman need to be able to hold that those two things are true about a group that I am a member of. Uh, do, what, who? I guess the question keeps being who, who does something about it? I mean is it other – is it white women's responsibility to talk to other white women about this? And, uh, you know, our, our, <laughs> our, our frustrated people of color just off the hook on this one. Well, I, I don't know that I would put it in p- precisely that way. I do think that it's white women's responsibility to talk to white women. I think it is, you know, it's like come get your people. And have a conversation with them about what's happening. I think the question might be, um, how do we understand uh, how um, pervasive 
white supremacy and white racism is anti-black racism, anti-people of color racism. How much is that part of how we sort of function every day in the world? And to really think very seriously about how we change people's minds and make people think differently about topics that they think they know a lot about. And particularly for white liberals, I think it's an important conversation, not just um, that white people have to have. You know, I mean, for me, yes. I I think also one of the reasons why these marches don't register for me and for many of my friends is precisely the sort of sometimes overwhelming whiteness of that. But there's also something else for me, which is – The problem I'm having with so much, not just the women's marches, but this whole, you know, supposed movement of resistance, right, to Trump, is that in the process, and I've written and talked about this a lot, is that in this process of resistance, we are, A, to make an obvious but necessary point, forgetting the history of so much of what we're seeing today. For instance, immigration. Right. So the reason, for instance, this is very, very quick, but the reason that we have 12 million plus people undocumented in this country is not because of George W. Bush, for instance, it's actually because of the policies put in place by the Clintons. And I say the Clintons because, yes, there was a co-presidency there. But, you know, so that's a very brief uh, note to make about immigration, for instance. But and then when we come to today and we think about the push for DACA, for instance, you know, radical and not so radical or, you know, let's just say immigration activists and theorists and analysts have long said that DACA, in the very beginning, even when it was being proposed, said DACA is a terrible, terrible idea because DACA positions people, you know, it, it, it produces certain kinds of good subjects and so on and so forth. It's also unsatisfactory because it's going to be a presidential, you know, order, not actual legislation. So what really bothers me is the intensity with which we are left to fight for an extraordinarily unsatisfactory piece of legislation, right? And I think this is the problem with the Trump era. My problem with Trump is not that he's Trump. My problem with Trump is that all of us are now responding and perhaps perforce are responding to Trump to keep terrible things in place. So we're not fighting for radical change. You know, right. I don't know if we would have fought for radical change with Hillary Clinton necessarily, but we're not fighting for anything that's particularly different now. We're going to take a phone call. Uh, The number is 312-923-9239. I'm talking with Yasmin Nair, uh, activist and editor-at-large of Current Affairs, and Jenny Breyer, uh, Director of Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. Laura, you are on WBEZ. Oh, can you hear me? Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I find it so interesting. Good. So I'm currently in the south side in front of the University of Chicago and picking up my 15-year-old daughter, and uh, I'm 57. I have a profession that's largely male, and I found so much difficulty in, uh, in these recent months uh, with various of the subject matters you're talking about. I, I didn't particularly like the Women's March at all. And, um, but most importantly, I think uh, what perhaps one of uh, I was, my call was taken was because of the Me Too movement. And, you know, I, I've worked my entire life both studying and also uh, working with men. I love men. I have a, a son who's 20, and I grew up with two brothers. I also had a mother and a grandmother who worked in primarily male fields. They're, you know, Italian. Uh, my mother was from Rome. And so the long and the short of it is the Me Too movement 
is not something I would ever want my daughter or myself to uh, have to say, me too. I'd, I'd rather say hashtag not me. And um, I, I was just wondering why I've noticed that, and it's certainly not a novel idea, that it, it tends to victimize uh, women in, in a moment when all you have to do is just give off the right vibe and it doesn't happen to you. I'm not talking about rape if you're in a dangerous neighborhood and perhaps someone has that in mind. But I am talking about the other parts of Me Too that are associated with getting ahead in work. And so I was just curious what the speakers thought about this. All right. So you're um, curious about uh, the Me Too movement and how this is um, uh, factoring in and uh, what, what uh, um, Yasmin, do you have some thoughts about this? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I see what you mean about I about this business of, you know, what about power of volition, et cetera, the ability to leave and so on. I understand all of that. I find many parts of the Me Too movement extraordinarily unsatisfactory. But at the same time, I also think it has, for better or for worse, and I think largely for better, initiated a public conversation about, especially about um, matters of sexual act. And I'm thinking about the Aziz Ansari story that just recently broke and where we had to all of us grapple publicly and privately with an extraordinary amount of, uh, you know, sexual graphic detail in an encounter that was not quite like the ones that we saw described with Harvey Weinstein, right? So I think that is really important because that's such an, I I don't want to say that it's outright ambiguous, but there is more ambiguity built into that story than with Harvey uh, Weinstein. So I think that's important. At the same time, my issue with Me Too, the Me Too movement, is that it is so focused on this idea of celebrity. And I, I think the big question for us moving forward, if we're going to talk about sexual assault or how we construe sexual activity and intimacy and all of that, we have to start asking ourselves a much harder question, which is what will, how will we respond when we hear allegations about the people we know and love and like. Right now, it's so easy for us to get into this massively public, confrontational, sometimes not, conf- you know, but this passive public discussion about what to do when he's a celebrity and, you know, these are the steps we must take and get rid of his TV show or take him out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The harder question is going to be, what will you do when it's someone you like? Um, Jenny? I would um, add to that. I guess the question for me is, and I appreciate wanting to be able to say not me, which I can't say. Um, and so I guess I wonder, as again, as the mother of a, of a son um, and uh, as a person who lives her life more with women than with men, um, what, what are we going to do to make sure that we're talking to young men about sexual consent, about um, female desire, and about what it means not for a woman to be able to say, not me, but for a man to be able to say, I will not. So it's not just, um, I don't think, I think that part of what we've learned about gender-based violence and sexual violence um, and sexual harassment and the range of activities around um, uh, around the way people um, use power to interact with one another sexually um, 
we have not had sufficient. We've also been um, in a time when we have seen abstinence-only education, where we don't talk about the realities of how people have sex, what desire looks like, what consent means. And we need to start to do that. So I would say loving men is one part of it, but you have to love them actually enough to tell them what it means to think about love. Jenny Breyer is Director of Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. Yasmin Nair is an activist and editor-at-large of Current Affairs. We will be back and continue the conversation and continue talking about uh, gender issues. 312-923-9239 is the number. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about gender and uh, the deep history of some of the patriarchy and colonial issues in this country today on Worldview. And with me is Yasmin Nair, an activist and editor-at-large of Current Affairs, Jenny Breyer, Director of Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. And since we promised to get into the history of all this, we have a professor of philosophy, Lewis Gordon, from the University of Connecticut with us. He is a leading scholar in Africana Studies and Black Existentialism. Thanks for joining us, Lewis Gordon. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I, I just barely made it, as I mentioned to you. I was just doing a blues performance. Oh, that's and you're a musician to boot. So, um, you know, you gave a talk here, and uh, we wanted to get into the history and some of the colonial aspects of this. Um, uh, women's liberation and black liberation movements, um, they've differed in the course of history, and they've fed off each other in the course of history. Um, do you have some examples of how this has occurred, and um, uh, maybe with Africa, and... Uh, how this might impact uh, what's going on in this country today? Well, one of the difficulties is that there are terrible ways in which these issues are discussed, not only in this country, but also in other countries like the UK or even South Africa. The short of it is there's a tendency to try to disaggregate gender and race as if a person could walk around simply as a gender, not a race, or a race is not a gender. And what we fail to understand is the intimate connection between the two and other categories of how human beings live in the world. So a very short run through. Run through. Um, what we're talking about is the world that was created by what we could call a Euro-modern colonialism and the emergence of global capitalism. Now, prior to that, there were many ways people lived. There were many ways people could relate to each other. But what began to dominate was a way that was inherited from a particular way of thinking. And that particular way of thinking affected the, the, the convergence of what's called Aristotelianism and Christianity. Aristotelianism basically said there was one kind of human being in the world, and that human being was a male. All other kinds were undeveloped males. So when they would look at what we today call a female, they had a very different thing in mind than what many of us today think of when we think of gender. They saw in what we call a woman's body simply a, a body trying to become a male. Now, that dominated that world until colonialism, 
where the ability to dominate whole groups of people at first defined those entire groups of people as undeveloped males. Now, this posed a problem because the people who were dominating them had their own undeveloped males. So ironically, once the shift went from gender, in other words, from woman and female as undeveloped to race as people of color or colonized people as undeveloped, it changed the social relationship of a different kind of undeveloped male into making her into a fully developed human. And that became the colonizing females. So in effect, ironically, what created, what began to stimulate the notion of woman equality, which we can specify as white woman equality, was actually racism and colonialism. Now, within that framework, as the question of negotiating how white women and white men relate to the rest of the world, that, of course, had its own baggage because, you see, the historical exclusion of those undeveloped males also created an attitude towards sex and sexuality. So in their inclusion, issues of sex and sexuality began to come on the table, and that brought with it a whole lot of baggages, baggage around the question of equality. Now, racial equality, which was being struggled for from the beginning, particularly as people became racialized, was also intimately connected to being engendered because whole groups of racialized people were being called feminine. Now, the historical reality then of fighting against colonialism and racism, it began to raise the question for white women, well, if they're superior to the other groups of races, why are they not being treated as equal to white men? And this had an impact on the suffragette movement. A lot of people don't know this, but a lot of people in the suffragette movement were trenchantly racist. They supported the Ku Klux Klan. They argued that white women should be protected from men of color. It was absolutely complicit. However, there were blacks who understood the deeper meaning of the suffragette movement because they understood that a change in social conditions could lead to putting certain other issues on the table. And Frederick Douglass, as an example, was one of those. He was an ardent egalitarian. He fought for the suffragette movement, despite the racism it was, in, it was um, manifesting. However, as the suffragette movement began to develop, the symbiotic connection emerged, which is this. If every time an issue of equality is posed for people of color, particularly blacks, the retrenchment took the form of trying to increase the question of liberties to white women. This happened in South Africa, for instance, where in an effort to create apartheid South Africa, white women were given the vote and they voted against black and other groups' equality. You see that pattern in the history of the United States, unfortunately. So, for instance, as more equalities began to emerge for blacks from the 30s and the 40s, but particularly in terms of the military, and among them, there were white women who actually saw the picture in the way Frederick Douglass did, such as Eleanor Roosevelt. The, the effort to retrench, to move into retrenchment, required increasing access for those women. So this symbiotic back and forth began to stimulate what we know as the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was struggled for all along, but there the initial conception was more radical. The idea was to reduce it to a more liberal moralistic model in which one can actually have certain procedures in place but keep the, in, the other inequalities also in place. 
And this is why, after the civil rights movement, the post-civil rights struggles have been about the question of how is it possible to have legal equal rights but de facto inequality. Now, as we begin to look at what's happening, other things come about. You notice, for instance, when I started this story, I talked about how the question of female exclusion also had along with it issues of sex and sexuality. And thus, the inclusion of white women began to raise the question of sexuality. So it began to stimulate questions of of gay movements and then eventually, as we see today, trans movements. And that's because the error of liberalism is to think that you could simply put people in a place without the relationships they have to other communities. And thus, even where there are certain problematic views about what certain groups may 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 manifest with their ideological positions, other changes come about. All right. Um, Lewis Gordon is professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. Um, Jenny Breyer is here at UIC at the Gender Studies Program. Uh, do you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. Um, so I'm also a historian, a historian of feminism and queer history. Um, and I guess... I wouldn't I won't argue necessarily with the long arc that has just been um laid out for us quite elegantly but I would actually like to call our attention to the long history um particularly in the United States um of black women activists making the argument that you cannot in fact talk about something called civil rights and only be talking about race and something called feminism and only be talking about women that in fact since um really since the early republic since the beginning of the 19th century and well before we have seen black women whether it's Mariah Stewart who is the first um, African American woman the first woman of any race to deliver a lecture to a mixed audience of men and women um, and making arguments about abolition and about the role of black women um, going through someone like Harriet Tugman through somebody um uh, like Ida B. Wells, our our own um, uh, in Chicago, a person with incredible um, power, uh, rhetorical power, with incredible social scientific skill, um, who has actually shaped, of course, the space that we sit at now at Navy Pier through the way she protested colonialism at the Columbian Exposition in 1893 to the Combahee River Collective, which is just celebrating its 40th anniversary, um, which is a, a group of radical black lesbians making arguments about how we all can experience liberation and what racial, what it means to end racist heteropatriarchy. Um, I think that black women have been have been fundamental to this work, um, and I would hate to miss them in the way that we're talking about this long historical arc. Uh, Yasmin, there, yeah, absolutely, um, and you know. To continue that arc, especially in terms of uh, Chicago activism, you know, you, you mentioned women, black women, uh, radical activists, and I'm thinking about contemporary women. Well, she's now gone back to New York, but we still consider part of Chicago. Mariam Kaba, you know, prison abolitionist with Project Nia. Uh, Anita Davis as a prison abolitionist. Uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. The the primary work done on the 
the most radical kind of prison abolitionist work is all done, almost entirely all done by black uh, radical women. So that I think is some, yeah, that's a part of the history that keeps getting, I wouldn't say erased, but constantly written out or ignored. Um, so I think that's really important to bring up. I'm really glad to have the question of sexuality raised and sexual uh, Gender and sexuality and the kind of feminization of bodies, which I think is the primary impulse in many ways in terms of the denigration of bodies, right? It is gender. It is the gendering of people that allows them to be denigrated. So I'm thinking about uh, Lumia in New York City years ago being sodomized, you know, with a broomstick by cops, right? So there's a way in which things like the brutality faced by bodies sexually is about putting them in a feminine position. And I think that aspect uh, is because perhaps because it's it's about bodily relations and abuse is not something that we often think about. But when you think about the current prison industrial complex, for instance, and the ways in which, you know, trans people are treated, the ways in which women are treated, the ways in which men are raped, and the threat of rape is often inflicted upon men to get them to cope, to be coerced to confession, for instance, right? That whole narrative around prison rape, all of that, I think, is is part of this very long history that both uh, Jenny and Lewis Gordon have pointed out. This, the ways in which that is now prevalent in the institutions that we see extracting so much from human beings in terms of the brutality. Um, I think that's really important. And absolutely, you know, in terms of white women and colonialism, um, absolutely, that's a history that we have to think about. And yet, I'm also very intrigued, and maybe we won't have time to discuss her in much detail. But I think the figure of Oprah Winfrey is really important in terms of how she today, as a woman, as a black woman who carries with her various narratives of oppression towards black women, also embodies a certain kind of whiteness and deep capitalism, right? That very interesting figure. A very interesting thought there. We'll have to dive into a little bit of Oprah Winfrey. After the break, with me is Yasmin Nair and Jenny Breyer, and on the phone, uh, Lewis Gordon from uh, University of Connecticut. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking with Yasmin Nair, activist, editor-at-large of Current Affairs, and Jenny Breyer, director of Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. And on the line with us is Lewis Gordon, professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. And um, I wanted to get um, get back to um, some of the ideas we were talking about here. I, I mean, uh, Lewis, you were talking about... Uh, the 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 kind of status of colonialized white women and do do you think that the women who are uh out here voting for Roy Moore and Donald Trump are kind of the heirs to the colonialized white women you were talking about well i 
they are heirs in the sense that if they think reductively, they think fundamentally in terms of being white. But the history of white women and the many other groups we talk about is actually a lot more complicated than it may first appear. And we have a short time, so I, I can't get into it. But let us just say that it's a lot more fluid. And, uh, and part of it is if you look at the story I told, there's an ambiguity in the category of white women. Because white women looked at in racialized term collapse into the sameness with white men. But white women looked at as women are always related to a potential that actually transcends what they are. For instance, a white woman can, in America's racial economy, produce a black child. And so a form of purity is often imposed on white women. And we see this with the stupid white genocide movement going on, where the idea is that any white, but they're really talking about white women. If they were to have children outside of their race, they're somehow threatening the welfare of that race. So the thing is, I think there's a lot of oversimplification out there in terms of how people think of gender and race, and particularly even the category white woman. And even when I spoke earlier about the history, yes, there were many there were many black women involved in these struggles and leading them. If we talk about Lucy Parsons, if we get to Anna Julia Cooper in the 19th century, who theorized it in ways similar to how I'm speaking now. But the crucial thing to bear in mind is that there is a location of how black women and black men are located, particularly around questions of race and gender. Uh, Martin Delaney argued similar uh, similar issues. We can go all the way through to some of the contemporary discussions. But the thing to bear in mind can be summarized if I give a simple example. It was talked about by Angela Davis. In her book, Woman, Race, and Class, Angela Davis brought up a very important um, de- um, statistic, and the demographics linked to that statistic are really astounding. See, although the rationalization for many lynchings was the idea of keeping black men from white women, 40% of lynchings were of black women and black children. And so once we realize that ultimately there is a form of sameness that collapses into the lynching, it means there's a lot more going on than our historical memory tends to, to, to signify. And if we look at the present right now, there is a form of commodification or a form of market in how to present that history. So, for instance, there will be a focus on the fact that 98% of black women did not vote for Trump, but there's an ignoring of the fact that 93%, that's a still significant number, of black men did not vote for Trump. There's a form of erasure in contemporary discourse that's connected to how one can appear as a political agent. And at the moment, some forms of formulating it is to, is to use a logic of how people, for instance, understood in terms of a certain portrait of victimization can, appor- can appear as part of a political conversation. And I do think that we need to disaggregate that into what's political versus what is desired or more moralistic and get into the dynamics of how power is actually distributed in the society. Um, Jenny Breyer, do you want to uh, well, respond? Well, I, I guess I, I think that that's a really useful articulation. And I guess the most contemporary version of it, I mean, there are other historical examples of of uh, white women activists, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, actually going to Kansas in 1869 to make the case that white women should receive the right to vote before black men. Um, There's a more contemporary example of that, which I think is really important. And when we talk about prison abolition and the role that black women and other women of color are playing in pushing that movement 
alongside black men and men of color is that there's a phrase that's talked about a lot in my field, which is called carceral feminism, which is this idea that um, the way we want to uh, deal with gender-based violence is to incarcerate. Um, so mass incarceration in many ways is the lynching of the 21st century and the late 20th century. And there's a range of work that's made that case. But it's this idea that the police state, that the that the prison industrial complex is going to be the answer to dealing with um, violence against women. And I think that that has a particular whiteness that's stitched into it that we – it's actually fundamental to it that we have to understand or else we can't explain – the fundamentally disproportionate rates of mass incarceration among um, black men and women in relationship. Uh, we're going to take a quick phone call. On the line with us is Laura. You're on WBEZ. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Thank you for this important discussion. Uh, so I am a closeted trans woman, and I have my feet um, kind of in two different perspectives. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot with people in the queer community, and I try to be as involved as possible. Um, but then also there are people from uh, sort of my straight white world that I'm also a part of. And one thing that I witness is that people in that straight white world, many of many white liberals um, want desperately to be an ally, but they are imperfect allies. And I often see them feeling alienated by, um, I guess, what are demands for, for purity within social activist movements. And obviously, we need them if we want to affect change. I don't want Trump to be president anymore. And so I, I struggle with this balance of how do we how do we um, deliver what are important radical messages, but at the same time, not alienate such a large public, uh, part of the population who are necessary, uh, probably to make that change happen. Yasmin, you were talking about this very, very, very thing earlier. Right. You know, I think the I would say yes, not to alienate. But I also think that there has been I, I completely get where you're coming from. And I can see that. But I also think that it is also the responsibility, for lack of a better word, of radicals to make the case, you know, we tend to not to we tend to not remember that the radical case for, for instance, prison abolition, or the radical case for queer radical politics has actually not been around for that long. You know, in terms of human history, it's barely a blip in time. So I would say that the constant charge that I hear that we are asking for purity politics is actually a reflexive backlash and an attempt to shut down radical positioning. That being said, I think the the, the thing to do is to figure out ways to talk publicly in real life, not online. So I do. So I mean, I can think about a couple of essays written last year about the women's marches and how people were shutting down, you know, uh, and asked demanding purity politics. The both those articles were based entirely on what the authors saw in their social media feeds, not in the kinds of discussions that I was a part of in real life, in rooms, face to face. I, so I think we have to start thinking long and hard about conversations in real life and how we think about organizing as opposed to I think a lot of this pushback about radical politics demanding purity comes from a wider sense of what might be happening in the ether, uh, which is not to say that some of us are not, you know, a little too demanding uh, of certain principles. But again, this is the problem when organizing isn't happening in real life as much. 
Uh, we, or rather, it does. We've just it got a, a couple minutes left here, and I wonder, uh, you know, um, uh, what do we do going forward here? Are you optimistic about um, what we are seeing happen right now, uh, Jenny Pryor? Well, I teach some amazing young people at UIC. It is an incredible place um, that teaches students, young people from across the state, but particularly from this city. And as a historian of the recent past, I have to say that I find the possibility of what um, what young people, people of color, white people, queer people can do in this city to be pretty inspirational. And it ha- I mean, historically, it's been true. And so sometimes I think um, adults need to be quiet and listen a little bit more to what young people are saying and not count them as uh, naive or unable to do these things. So yeah. I guess I'm, yes, I'm cautiously you- optimistic. <laughs> I'm optimistic, but I'm actually more, you know, I, I think about strategic pessimism a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's sort of one, my mantra right now. And I think for, for me, really, as someone who is thinking about, org- you know, the dynamic between organizing and reflexive analysis and how all of that goes together, you cannot have organizing without analysis. You can't have analysis simply sort of make its way into the world without some sort of, you know, real world organizing as well. As someone who's thinking in those terms, I think it's really important for us to start thinking about what we conceive of as a public sphere and what we conceive of as political work, which has to be taking into account conceptual abstract concepts as much as real life, in real life contact with people. Uh, We're losing, I think, that sense of that dynamic relationship between the two. Uh, But again, strategically pessimistic, occasionally optimistic. (laughs) Yasmin there is academic (laughs) activist and editor-at-large of Current Affairs. Jenny Breyer is Director of Gender and Women's Studies at UIC. And thanks also to, uh, on the line with us, Lewis Gordon, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to be talking about biodiversity in Chicago and the rest of the world. Chicago is actually an enormously biodiverse place, and there is a man who has created a thousand-page book documenting that biodiversity. He will join us tomorrow, and we will learn learn a thing or two about our biodiverse community here in Chicago. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance, Mike Gilmore for engineering, and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.